We are recording. Welcome everyone to Emancipation Party 2.0, catalyzing game B infused political action. I'm Albert Kim, founder of Noetic Nomads, a community of radical thinkers and doers co-creating a more beautiful future. I'd like to thank everyone gathered here today for what looks to be the kickoff of something much greater. And we very much appreciate your interest in today's endeavor. Um, now, the origin of this session was an exchange I had with our facilitator for today, Ryan Nakade, who was very much into mobilizing a political movement inspired by integral and progressive thought. Now, he proposed uh, a panel for people in the sense-making and adjacent communities who want to run for political office, you know, so we could turn these abstract systems change ideas into reality and carve out a space for political transformation. Now, one thing mentioned in our exchange was Ryan's desire to revive something akin to the Emancipation Party. Now, uh, if for those who are unaware, this is the third party experiment started back in 2013, out of which the Game B movement was born. Now, I found it natural that to help guide the next generation of civic hellraisers and do-gooders, we have here the inimitable founder of both those movements, the one and only Jim Rutt. So I'd like to start by Jim. Thank you so much for uh, uh, joining us here today. Hey, thank you. This is uh, is interesting. You know, part of the old the, the Game B story was that in early 2014 we basically put them put both the Emancipation Party idea and Game B into spore mode, where we the the group that we had built that this far and said we've gotten as far as we can take it. And uh, then in 2018, these spores started to re-sprout and come back to life. Uh, the Game B spore first, and now looks maybe like the Emancipation Party spore might come back to life. Who knows? Though so, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about whether it's advisable to actually try to uh, launch a third party at this time. Yeah, definitely. Those spores are definitely starting to sprout. we got mushrooms everywhere. And uh I like to talk about um, our facilitator for today is he, I guess he's a very powerful mushroom, uh, Ryan. Ryan will start by facilitating discussion with Jim on the Emancipation Party, uh, the origin and lessons learned. And then we'll um, have it out. We'll ask uh, if there's any questions, comments for those partic uh, particularly interested in running for office or in helping with campaigns. And from there, we can move more into like a, a group discussion or whatnot. So again, so... Ryan, please take it over from here and get us into catalyzing real political change infused with Game B principles. Thank you, Albert. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here, and uh, thank you everyone for joining. And um, you know, I, I don't have a particular attachment to whether we crystallize a new political party and, or movement or not, but rather just there are so many brilliant minds in these spaces, right? In Game B, meta modern, integral, and adjacent communities, and I just wanted to see a little bit more conscious thought put into politics and political uh, change and what role politics plays in all of the systems change and societal change that we talk so often of. And if we can actually find points of agreement or specific policies or even just meta frames for how we should best sense make around these very complex and very divisive and polarizing issues at these times. So it's a honor to be uh, talking to Jim. Jim, it feels like I already know you, given I've watched like all of your podcast episodes and your recent one with Layman was particularly awesome. So as Albert said, I'll have a few questions for Jim and then we'll open it up to chat and specifically kind of prioritize people who have interest in uh, running for office or being part of a campaign. So the first question for you, Jim, is with the Emancipation Party, what were you hoping to accomplish with the party? And if you could be as specific as you can about specific policies or ideas, that would be awesome. Well, of course, we thought we were going to take over the world. Naive 
uh, 12 people that we were, uh, that we were going to uh, somehow uh, take advantage of a coming crisis of confidence in game A. We didn't have the name game A at the time. And we'd be there when the crisis occurred. And we'd be big enough to be the, uh, the ones who had enough of the answers to step forward. And, uh, you know, the uh, ideas are not too far from uh, many of the ideas in game B now, which is that uh, the establishment, as we would have called it in those days, uh, was uh, fundamentally captured by the inner cycle of money on money return. Uh, you know, we're, at least I am not a believer in uh, game A as a great conspiracy. I rather see it as an emergent system uh, driven by some frozen accidents in history, things like the creation of the Bank of England in 1694, you know, the Federal Reserve 20, uh, 1913, whatever the hell it was, uh, you know, various other frozen accidents over time. No doubt there were people who were trying to work these frozen accidents to their advantage. You might call that uh, I don't know, not necessarily a conspiracy, but people playing the game hard to use those frozen accidents to their uh, benefit. And the result has been a society utterly dominated by hyper-financialization uh, that is roaring in a, uh, on a religion called growth uh, towards the edge, you know, towards, uh, uh, in fact, by everybody I know who's knowledgeable about this, we're already past the sustainable carrying capacity of the earth. Uh, and we're just accelerating the demands on earth uh, every day. And the nature of game A is it has no breaks uh, because of the fact that it has a monetary system. And this was the original Emancipation Party insight was that the fundamentals of the uh, current monetary system demand growth or it dies. Uh, you know, specifically the uh, basing of our monetary system on fractional reserve banking uh, where the money is created uh, for the loans uh, through the banking process, but no money's created for the interest. Oh dear, right? Uh, and so we're on this perpetual treadmill. And while that's a deep re uh, root generator function, uh, it produced all kinds of other things that have nothing to do with money, uh, or at least not the inner inner cycle. You know, for instance, uh, uh, you know, we have a whole financial industry, which is abstracted several levels up from money itself, but it, but it still dances to the beat of money on money return. We have a political system, which has been captured by vested interests of various sorts, some of them not necessarily money driven, but many of the biggest and most efficacious ones also under the under the hood, the beat of money on money return. Da, 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 da. So, you know, that's what they're optimizing for. And uh, so we thought, that uh, we could lay out some reforms, uh, both on the root cause and also on some of these second order emergent uh, problems that came from that. And when I, I mentioned root, it's kind of interesting. The thing that actually started all this uh, was I'd been thinking about money for years and thinking of it in the context of complex systems. And in, I think it was February, 2012, I wrote a 65 page paper on my thoughts and it was called The Root Doc. And I sent it to a friend of mine, a guy named Jordan Hall, at that time known as Jordan Greenhall. And he said, well, I don't think you're crazy because that was my question. Hey, Jordan, read this. Tell me if I'm nuts, right? He said, I don't think you're crazy. I think there's something here. And then we recruited Brett Weinstein as uh, co-conspirator number three. And then uh, we brought in other people. And then we had the 
the six, the five Stanton meetings in Stanton, Virginia, every six weeks where we flew in people from all over the United States and then eventually from the Caribbean and Canada and had face-to-face -face meetings uh, to work through these ideas. And we had a very vibrant online community uh, that we worked on between meetings on, uh, on moving these efforts forward. So that's, uh, you know, that's sort of the, the, the you know, the sort of where we, where it actually started from and the generator function, which we believe uh, is the root of much evil. I wouldn't say all evil, but a lot. Uh, so anyway, the, uh, the, by the way, the Emancipation Party website is still up. I've been paying the $10 a month ever since God knows when to keep it up. Emancipationparty.org. And so you can, there's three levels of detail on each of these 10 reforms or 11 reforms, wherever they are that I, that we created. And you can go pretty deep on them and, uh, and read about them. Uh, you want me to go ahead and uh, kind of go through quickly the 10 reforms, give a sense, people a sense of uh, where our hearts were at? Sure, that would be, be great. All right, the first one, of course, we called free money, and that's a new monetary system uh, where banks are not involved in uh, the creation of money. Uh, money comes into the system through a citizen's dividend. Everybody gets a, um, a basically $2,500 a year of free money that appears in their account, uh, which they can spend, and that's how new money enters the system. And the, it's a bunch of math on how much that stipend is, but... Uh, can read all that, uh, but that's generally the idea. And the system does not require um, the existence of commercial banks to be involved in money at all. They can sh they should, they'll go back to what they used to be uh, about, which is being smart and uh, uh, clever on who they lent money to and managing those loans appropriately. And in fact, there's uh, no contradiction. Turns out that those two roles are entirely separable. There's no reason that banks should be in the money creation business and in the lending money business. Uh, there's some very good books actually on how to do that. Uh, second one we called uh, real transparency, or I think uh, I think some one of our damn editors took it to real transparency. I preferred radical transparency. Uh, and this is the idea that uh, all tra uh, financial transactions should be world readable. Uh, certainly, the, literally the bank account of every company, you should be able to see every check they write, who it went to and what it was for. Uh, everyone who owns a legal entity, who owns it, how much, what they paid for it, when they bought it, and the full legal documents that did the transaction should be on a world-readable uh, database. Uh, we argued whether that should also include the personal realm. Uh, and we came up with a straddle, which was, uh, yes, but uh, each person would get $2,000 a month of private money, which they could spend on their favorite vices. Uh, but anything beyond that would be transparent. Truthfully, there was never true consensus on that. And I think if anyone was going to go down the road to radical transparency, probably the best bet would be not to include uh, the individual wallet. But frankly, I think it'd be a good idea to include it. But uh, uh, it's probably a loser in the, in the uh, court of public opinion. Uh, next was open finance. And this was pretty technical. I had a many-year career building... Uh, information systems for Wall Street and investors and big corporations and stuff. And so from that, we uh, developed a whole series of ideas uh, about how finance itself could be made utterly and radically transparent uh, in the same way all trans transactions uh, became transparent. Today, uh, you know, the big hedge funds and investment banks get most of their profit 
from unfair information asymmetries, right? Uh, which is kind of funny because the people that argue for market uh, fundamentalism forget that one of the axioms of market fundamentalism is that markets are only efficient if everybody has equal and symmetric information. God damn it, and they don't. Uh, so this uh, reform, while it's quite technical, uh, is aimed at exactly that. Uh, the next uh, is uh, we called smart tax, which was elimination of all loopholes and deductions from the tax code. Uh, uh, tax capital gains, the same as ordinary income. We all know Warren Buffett said, hey, it's kind of bizarre that my secretary has a higher marginal tax rate than I do. You know, he was the second richest guy in the world at the time. Uh, and most of that's because of uh, lobbying-based uh, tax advantages for capital gains, carried interests, and some other things. Get rid of all that, goddammit. Uh, we'd also, uh, you know, get rid of the... Um, uh, basically include all, all taxes into one single tier of taxing rather than have all these games that people can play. And again, fairly technical. It's all written up in the, uh, in the system. Um, now, uh, the next one is one that's very timely, which we called clean democracy. Uh, and uh, in fact, one of the organizing principles that got a lot of people interested was the fact that we had expressed the fact that money had corrupted politics. But as we started thinking about it and studied it, we realized there's actually some advantages of money in politics, right? Which is an election happens on one day, each person has one vote, which is indivisible. Uh, and so there's no way to get a partial signal of who is getting strength. And the nice thing about money is it's uh, non-time synchronized. You can give money to a candidate at any time, and it's also partial. Uh, let's say you have $100 that you have in your wallet that you're going to give out to politicians for this year. You can give out a penny at a time or a dollar at a time. So, you, so it's not uh, lump sum, and it's not synchronized in time. So we said, hmm, money in politics is actually a useful signal. However, what's corrupt is it that people have differential sizes of wallet. So the reform we came up with is called clean democracy, uh, which is that we'll still have money in politics. However, the only money that can be spent uh, in politics is uh, uh, what we call blue money for some strange reason. But anyway, it would be earmarked uh, into your account such that it can only be transferred, presumably using a blockchain technology now, uh, to a registered political entity uh, and to be used for political purposes. And the most important parts, everybody gets exactly the same amount, $100 a year, whether you're a welfare mother or Bill Gates. Uh, well, I guess Bill Gates is no longer apropos. Uh, Jeff Bezos, yeah, everybody gets 100 bucks. Uh, you give it to who you want. Uh, and of course, it's on the blockchain. So people know where it came from, where it went. And that's the only money in politics. So that way we have the advantage of the partiality and the time asynchronicity. Uh, but uh, nobody has an unfair advantage from their money. Uh, the next reform, we were pretty timely on this, called the citizenship wage. It's exactly the same thing as a UBI. Uh, and they stole it from us, goddammit! Uh, <laughs> Actually, uh, the term I think was just starting to float around just to, towards the later days of, uh, of the Emancipation Party, but we called the citizenship wage and included the, the monetary grant we talked about earlier. We also went through all the welfare programs and tax cheats and all this stuff. Said, all right, if we captured all this, how much money could we give out to each adult? And the number we came up with was $8,000 per year per adult plus $4,000 per year per child over the age of four. Uh, it, the number would be considerably larger today and also didn't include some more radical things like reducing the defense budget, which there's plenty of room for squeezing that thing down. Uh, so you could probably today get a, uh, 
citizenship wage of maybe $12,000 per year per adult and $6,000 per year um, uh, per person four years and, uh, and over. Um, the next one is uh, kind of conceptually more difficult and, uh, and this is what we called open creation. Uh, one of the innovations in the Emancipation Party, which has moved over to the Game B world and has gotten some uh, notoriety even in academic circles, is the idea of the distinction between rivalrous and non-rivalrous economics. Uh, you know, the canonical example of a rivalrous good is a ham sandwich. Either you eat it or I eat it. We both can't eat it, right? Uh, and it has a certain marginal cost to create. And on the scale of things, it's relatively substantial marginal cost. The cost to create the ham sandwich is probably 90% of the price if you, you know, have your, if you make one from the ingredients in your refrigerator. Um, on the other hand, a non-rivalrous good uh, is classically uh, like an MP3 file of music. Costs next to nothing uh, to replicate. Now, it turns out that uh, that very low marginal cost is also true of some manufactured goods, uh, such as pharmaceuticals. You know, many pharmaceuticals are trivial to stamp out. A pill that costs $5 actually costs one cent to make. And so our theory was this big reform is that all non-rivalrous goods uh, must be created for the world at their marginal cost. Uh, so if you want a copy of the newest album by Blah Blah, it costs you a tenth of a cent, uh, which is the marginal cost of creating it. But then the problem goes, wait a minute, people need more than that if they're going to have an incentive to create. We still have to, su uh, to support the creator industry. So much like we talked about with clean democracy, in open creation, everybody gets a stipend. Uh, a little bit bigger than the democracy one, let's call it $120 a year, uh, which they can put to uh, fund creators. Uh, so they have a favorite musician. They say, I'll give uh, $2 a month out of my creator stipend uh, that goes to uh, these creators. And oh, by the way, uh, you don't just, you know, anyone who wants to can give money to a creator. And it's, it's frankly much like the idea of GoFundMe or Kickstarter, but we had the idea a little earlier. Uh, and we think that's a very interesting way to still to get all the advantages of non-rivalrous economics that everybody gets the cost of things that are cheap to replicate at the marginal cost. And yet we still have a multi billions of dollar fund for uh, the people themselves to decide what uh, innovation and creation they want. Uh, next, uh, again, I think we're a little ahead of the curve here, drug peace. Uh, we think when we thought that uh, and from some of those financial interests, you know, famously the alcohol and tobacco industries were some of the funders of the early days of the drug wars, things of that sort, for the obvious reason, right? Uh, and, and we also thought it was just bad policy that people, particularly people of color, were being incarcerated at ridiculous rates for, you know, selling a, a weed that grows by the side of the road, right? And so we were committed to a, a very bare bones minimum. This was 2012, early 2013. Uh, legalizing absolutely marijuana, totally, you know, and not this goofy ass, half-ass legalization we have today with all these taxes and uh, licenses and all this crap. It would be, hey, you want to grow some reefer in your backyard? Do it. If you want to sell it on a card table in front of your house, you're welcome to. Um, might have some rules against selling it to people 18 or under, but uh, otherwise, why should the government have a sticky little fingers uh, in uh, this at all? And then we would uh, pragmatically consider the other drugs and experiment uh, with legalizing some of them. 
uh, maybe all of them. Uh, and you know, I think that's where the world is now kind of caught up with us. Oregon recently legalized heroin, I think, uh, and small quantities. Maybe that's a good idea, maybe not, but it's worth exploring. And then the final one is just sort of plain common sense. Uh, uh, we basically advocate what we call universal health care. What a concept, right? Uh, in the U.S., uh, that would be the equivalent of Medicare for all. Uh, anyone who follows the issues knows the United States is the only uh, advanced country on earth that doesn't have uh, pretty much full good quality health care for everybody. And very ironically, we pay about twice as much per person for our unfair health care system as other countries do. Even Canada, very similar country, uh, I think they pay 60 cents on the dollar for every dollar we uh, spend. And they've got uh, health care for everybody, basically. So that, that last one was uh, probably less philosophically informed rather than just good governments informed. Everybody's got full health care, period, just built into the system. Uh, so those were the, uh, the 10 uh, reforms that we put out into the world in uh, November 2012 and actually finalized them in January 2013. Uh, and there they sit for anyone who wants to take them and use them. Thank you, Jim. That was awesome. Um, and I know that you've also explained elsewhere about kind of how the party petered out and how it kind of, how the political part kind of transmortified into current incarnation of game B. So I'll have one more question for you, which I think you partially touched on. But before I ask that question, I'm going to post a prompt in the chat. And it's, and basically, it's if you want to run for office or be a part of a campaign in the chat, please type your name, where you live, what office you want to run for and why. And if you have any questions or comments for Jim and Albert will help sift through the chat and select questions and um, you can be doing that while Jim is responding to my question. So let me just post that in the chat right now. Okay, there we go. All right, so uh, my last question for you, Jim, is, you know, people of different political persuasions, some people are more progressive leaning and believe that government should play a proactive role in addressing social and systemic issues. Other people have a more libertarian or even anarchist bent where government should not play a role and we should make space for more self-organizing decentralized initiatives to crop up organically to address these issues. So big picture thinking, what, in your opinion, what role does government play in helping us to transition to this Game B civilization that we're all talking about? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, the Game B movement as it exists today uh, prides itself on being a big tent uh, in, with respect to Game A politics. We've got anarcho uh, uh, capitalists, we have left uh, libertarians, we have Trumpians, we've got, uh, you know, DNC Democrats, we have Fox News Republicans. Uh, so one thing about the Game B movement, as it has evolved, even though intentionally, originally, you'll love this, the original uh, theory for the Game B was to serve as a on-ramp for millennials into the Emancipation Party, because uh, we found that the millennials hated the term political party. And uh, literally, it was a tactic, a marketing tactic. But it was interesting. It got so much energy of its own that it eventually surpassed the party entirely. And it's gone in ways that, uh, you know, that it's no longer tied at all to the old Emancipation Party. And uh, people in Game B would argue uh, about what, you know, uh, whether the emancip old Emancipation Party uh, platforms are a good idea or not. And as you allude to, uh, you know, the core uh, four principles of Game Beedom. Uh, self-organization, uh, decentralization, net network centricity, and metastability uh, don't necessarily need government, right? They are in principle 
uh, uh, much more distributed and high, much higher dimensionality. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I think as a practical matter, uh, particularly in the transition to B, so-called transition B, uh, government does have a role to play. Uh, and you can't, and we used to say back in the venture business, uh, you can't jump up a cliff and uh, getting from where we are to uh, a, a world of radical self-organization, decentralization, and net network centricity is a long road. And so I think government can do a number of things, uh, and frankly, a lot of the things on our platform uh, to make it better. Just, just as a simple idea, uh, if we had universal health care in the United States, it'd be a hell of a lot easier for people to quit their game A jobs and go live on a proto B, right? Proto Bs are the new idea for on the ground uh, civilizations, proto Bs and civiums. Uh, just be a hell of a lot easier, right? Uh, and if we had a citizenship wage, again, it would be a heck of a lot easier. Uh, and I would say that we, we had not quite envisioned the coming robotics wave at this time in 2012. And uh, that makes the idea of a citizenship wage even more important because uh, otherwise uh, the uh, capitalists, the money on money return people are gonna own it all. We're gonna be serfs, you know, one of the bad attractors. I mean, one of my favorite papers I wrote is called In Search of the Fifth Attractor. And I lay out the bad attractors that our society could fall into, plus one good one. And the bad ones are neo-fascism in the Chinese model, uh, neo-dark ages in the religious fundamentalist model, chaos, which is if shit just falls apart, and then neo-feudalism. And I would say that that's the one that we're on in the United States. You know, the, Think of it as the uh, Koch brothers, Peter Thiel model, uh, if they had their way. Uh, you know, they'll own all the robots. Everybody else will be a serf, essentially. Uh, and so I think it's really important that, uh, that people running for public office understand this and get ahead of the curve and realize we have to manage the transition to a, uh, economic abundance on the other side. And part of that's going to be involve things like a citizenship wage, at least for a while. Awesome. Thank you. So um, we'll go to some questions. And I only saw a couple posted in the chat. So at this point, I'll also ask uh, if anyone else, whether you want to run for office or not, has questions or comments for Jim to respond to, go ahead and drop them in the chat. And uh, Albert was monitoring the chat, but since I only see two here, we'll start with Stephanie, if you want to... Are you, if you, did you want to unmute and ask anything or? Hi, um, no, just, yeah, I would love, I love that this is happening and I would love to help with media for anyone who's running. So, and I will, I will actually put a question in the chat for Jim. I'm just typing one handed here. <laughs> Cute cool. baby. I'm a new Thank grandpa. So I have you. a new grandpa, so I'm definitely oh, uh, congratulations. Uh, six months old, and uh, we'll go back up and see her in a week. And every we go about once a month, and she's a new baby every month, as you well, know. On behalf of the mom, thank you for for going and visiting and helping out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Great, and also just say too that I'm hoping to kind of parlay this one session into. A uh, series of meetings or gatherings for people who are interested in, in networking more and sharing ideas and kind of having brainstorming sessions about this. So if all of them don't get addressed today, then hopefully uh, we'll we'll self-organize into something more later. Um, Albert, can you help me? I kind of got lost with the chat and everything. Could you help the? Oh yeah, questions? sure. Uh, we could go to Simon Carter from the UK if you'd like to unmute yourself and uh, ask a question or give a comment. Well, only that. Um... 
we've set up a new political party in the UK, moneyfreeparty.uk. Um, most of Jim was saying seemed to revolve around the maintenance of money. We want to get rid of it. Just wonder what his thoughts are on that. This is something that uh, Jordan Hall and I talk about at least weekly, uh, which is uh, probably the next generation of our thinking uh, is going to go to uh, decomposing money into multiple social signals. Uh, money is essentially a social signal that uh, serves to organize uh, production, distribution, and investment, uh, plus or minus. Uh, and those are things that need to be done in a society, but it's not clear that they need to be done by one signal denominated uh, with one kind of token. Uh, so we're thinking hard about what that might be. If you guys have figured that out, I'd like to hear about it. You do need a social signal of some sort. The shit won't self-organize entirely without some way to coordinate uh, who makes what, uh, who gets what, how much of what is made, et cetera. So uh, if you guys got something new, I'm uh, you know, send, send it to me. I'm happy to look at it. If I like it, you can, have, you can come on my podcast, The Jim Rutt Show, and uh, we can talk about it. I talk about this kind of stuff all the time on that show. So what was that? Uh, make sure that uh, you put that in the chat box and uh, I'll make yeah. sure I, I take check, a look at it. Check out the website. It's, it's yeah. quite, quite content rich. Most of it put there by Eric, who's on this call also. Cool. Good thinking. Glad people are working on this. People will right. think you're nuts, by the way. Uh, one thing I should uh, m uh, mention as a committed monetary crank, uh, particularly in the days when I was working on it full time, uh, when you get talking about new mon monetary systems, people's eyes glaze over. Uh, so if you're going into the politics of it, don't talk about the monetary system other than, uh, you know, that it's in the platform somewhere. Uh, and the reason is, I've come convinced, is that people have reified the idea of money. They think uh, that the fractional reserve banking system was uh, one of the things on uh, the uh, stone tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. Uh, and they don't realize it's a series of frozen accidents, uh, the, the most recent of which was, uh, well, the most important one recently was in 1971 when the US went off the gold standard. Uh, but it's a whole number of uh, frozen accidents and they don't realize that as recently as 1900, uh, monetary systems were a major issue in uh, political campaigns. Famously, William Jennings Bryant ran on uh, bimetallism, the idea that we should have both gold and silver. And his most famous, famous speech is called the uh, cross of gold. You shall not crucify mankind on a cross of gold. Uh, but uh, these days, uh, I would not lead with money uh, because it puts people to sleep. Or worse. Do you mind if I just jump in here real quick, Albert? Just because oh, yeah, I'm go ahead, Eric. Yeah, you're, you're both thing. part of the same party, it, right? It, yeah. it just fits in here. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I agree with what Jim said about the indicator function of money, right? That something flowing around the culture indicating what is required, what is in surplus, where the pressure points are, etc. I completely agree with that. But the idea of magic tokens that can buy you anything will just inevitably create perverse incentives in the culture. You know what I mean? And, and, yeah. and that yeah, one dimensional is the problem. Avoidable conclusion, hence the hence the desire to try and figure out ways to do things like providing food and shelter 
water and water and electricity and communications and transportation without the recourse to money right and then once you've done that then figuring out the you know the, the finer points will become much 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 clearer from that position so the money free party is basically about bringing into commons the basics of life which are currently in the transactional economy and have no fucking business being there right and then once that is once that bedrock is established then figuring out ways to do the more complex and subtle parts of things without money might become more apparent that's the basic idea Yep, you'll you'll need social signaling of some sort, even for the basics. But uh, you, uh, you know, again, I would encourage you to explore uh, that the real root cause of money is the fact that it's this, uh, and you can't route around. But if it looks like this, with multiple modalities that mean different things, uh, you don't get this perverse uh, multipolar trap race to the bottom. At least I think it's possible to to get work around it. Uh, very interested in looking what you guys are up to. This is, uh, you know, I'm glad to see some new, fresh thinking in this domain. Uh, and again, I'm happy to have you on my podcast and you can get yourself a little audience for uh, this stuff. And uh, I will spend my usual 10 hours researching it before the podcast. And, and I'll ask you some tough questions. I might even, uh, you know, critique some of your stuff, but you'll get an honest, you'll get an honest, uh, an honest readout. I'll be in touch with you, Jim. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks so much. Connections being made. I love it. Uh, next, uh, Nate Kaufman. Uh, would you like to meet yourself and ask Jim uh, your question? Sure. Hi, Jim. Uh, I'm Nate. I'm from Pennsylvania, uh, quite a rural and conservative district in Pennsylvania. Um, I plan to run for office at some point. Not sure what office yet. Uh, in the meantime, I would love to work on some campaigns. Uh, my question, uh, I'll just read it. Um, how do you think about translating game beef frames to the normies, uh, whether that's GOP or Trumpist populists or progressive liberals? Um, do you lead from ahead, pulling people toward anti-rivalist thinking? So just stand up and say what it is that you believe, or do you push from behind and meet people where they are? And what I'm thinking is in, in my district, which is plus 20 points Republican, how would you even start to talk about things like universal health care when from the game a point of view you're just a progressive liberal yeah that's you know of course i live someplace similar i live in in the lowest population density county east of the mississippi uh down in uh virginia not far from the west virginia line our whole county 450 square miles has 2200 people uh the electoral precinct i live in went 75 percent for trump uh, so I know of what you speak, uh, uh, and it's an interesting issue. Though interestingly enough, I believe that these people, if they're approached correctly, are probably more amenable uh, than the people in New York City or L.A., right? Because uh, they're the ones that have been screwed the most by game A, uh, and they have uh, also been screwed by, you know, uh, the master of lies, old uh, old Mr. Cheeto himself, with the orange skin and the and the comb over, uh, and so I think they are amenable to it over time, so long as you speak their language and that you don't lard it up with a bunch of cultural uh, unnecessary stuff that turns uh, turns them off. And, and, and oh, by the way, it's not a journey of a single day; it's a journey of many years. Uh, and, and you'll get a few, only a few people have ears to hear. In fact, actually, this is a very good point. Uh, the current, I would say, center of thinking in the game B space, and again, there is no 
official game B doctrine, which is somewhat problematic for communication purposes, but it is what it is, uh, is that the time is not right for a explicitly game B politics because we don't have enough evidence yet. Uh, it's just a bunch of people saying, hey, we think we're geniuses. Here's the idea for the operating system of the future. Uh, hell, if I was uh, someone that lived here in our county and uh, heard that, I'd say, well, it sounds like horseshit to me, right? Uh, so we're focusing in the short term on uh, creating the proto-bees and the civiums, which is, uh, and, and also other forms of people living together in game B ways. And, you know, I think if we come back in five years and say, oh, here's uh, 50,000 people living according to the ideas of game B, have their own alternative social signaling system that organized particularly to Eric's point to the necessities, nobody in game B will ever be homeless by definition. If you become part of game B, we'll take care of you. It's just the way it is. And that's any... Any normal civilization should be that way, right? Can you, and the depravity of people living on the streets, uh, there's something fucked up about that in a huge and major way. And the, you know, the good church going people here in our county would understand that, right? Uh, but if you, uh, you know, you come up from that perspective of hectoring big city people who look down on country people, of course, they're going to tell you to go fuck yourself. Uh, and that's not where, uh, where game B is going to come from. We're going to be rural base to a substantial degree. Uh, we're not going to get ourselves caught up in the culture wars, which is, uh, you know, very cynical. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's driving a lot of the polarization in this country. And, uh, you know, I think, and so I think uh, you guys just got to be careful and no, don't assume you can do too much too soon, but don't give up because there are ears to hear, as we say. Uh, if, uh, if you've ever read the uh, literature of entrepreneurhood, uh, Jeffrey Moore read a Fame, uh, wrote a famous book called uh, Crossing the Chasm. Uh, and there's some other books that use the same metaphor. And essentially he, he identified that any new product will go through a adoption curve. Well, first there's the innovators, which he estimates to be one and a half to 2% of any population. And then there's the early adopters, which are about 15%. And then there's the early majority, uh, which is about, let's do the math, 20, blah, 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 blah. 32% gives you up to a majority. There's the late majority, which is another 32%. And then there's the laggard, which is the final 18. Uh, the ideas of game B, frankly, speak to the innovators, to the 2%. Uh, so uh, don't yet try to sell it to the other uh, categories. Build up uh, a cadre of uh, people who understand and can communicate in the 2%, those with the ears to hear. Relatively soon, I think the next major debacle in our system will open up the early adopters. And in fact, the uh, piss poor response to COVID by most of the governments in the West may be doing at least in part. Uh, and so then you got the, uh, the, the next 18%. And it turns out once an idea gets out to about 15%, uh, it it's at the point where it can take off. Uh, so I would, I would suggest play the long game. Don't try to sell where people aren't buying. Uh, find the one or 2% that currently have ears to hear. Uh, and to the degree you can demonstrate rather than say so much the better. All right. Uh, awesome. Jim, um, next, uh, Alexander Gould, would you like to unmute yourself and uh, ask Jim your question? Let me take a one second oh, break sure. and go get my cup of coffee, my cup of tea. Sure. No problem. In the meantime, as uh, Jim takes his tea break, um, anyone want to chime in and have any, uh, have any uh, comments on discussion so far? Go ahead, unmute yourself. Yeah, I'll chime in a little bit. Um, hi, my name is Duncan. 
and I uh, um, have a, a, a couple comments here, the, you know, and uh, maybe there's like a question here too. Um, you know, one thing, so I used part of the Green Party back in the day, and I remember like kind of being like, oh, this is the only game in town when it comes to like third party politics. And I, I heard even like Jim's joke about like, you know, they stole the idea from us, but I'm thinking about like, how can we get all these different sort of third parties kind of that are popping up like to be able to work together. Cause I know that there's all sorts of different ideas and somehow these are gonna need to be working together, you know? And, you know, um, and um, I also just wanna put a little extra emphasis on Jim's point about uh, the importance of demonstrating that game B reality is a possibility. And um, I think that you know, like I'm personally interested in thinking about like, how can we create demonstrations of non-rivalrous deliberative de participatory democracy? And actually that's kind of the place where I'm thinking of putting my energy right now, my field's conflict transformation. So I'm like interested in bringing dialogue tools to uh, political spaces and actually just starting to work with my local city council and see if we can just start creating more deliberative processes here, just start demonstrating that this is what a non-rivalrous process would look like. Um, yeah, um, yeah, and I'm also supporting the idea of the long game. You know, I think that this is something that we need to remember that uh, we're not gonna get, you know, thinking about how, what we can accomplish in 10 years, like opens up a whole world of possibility. Thinking about what we can accomplish this year is gonna make us be frustrated. Yeah, let, me, let me address that last point first, and this is very important. Uh, it, the most comprehensive thing I've written so far on a possible route to Game B is a paper I wrote called A Journey to Game B. It's available on Medium, and I uh, lay out a 70-year road to Game B on that one, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I lay it out step by step and in detail, like 24 pages, something like that. Uh, however, I also promise in that uh, paper that I'm going to write a second paper, which I haven't yet uh, uh, done, but I have the ideas and the notes are coming together called The Short Road to Game B. In fact, I subtitled that one The Long Road to Game B. And this is hugely important and why we need to be working hard every day because you say, wait a minute, 90 years from now, 70 years from now, what the hell? Why should I work hard on that? Uh, the reality is uh, our, the unfolding of our civilization is a high order complex adaptive system. And one of the things we know, and you know, I've spent the last 20 years studying complexity science in association with the Santa Fe Institute, where I'm a researcher. I'm also on their board and I'm their former chairman. So uh, I have learned a lot of complexity science. And if there's one takeaway that's the most important about that is that our ability to foresee the unfolding of complex adaptive systems is a lot less than we think it is. Uh, we, I push the idea of epistemic uh, humility uh, that if you think you know what's going to happen in 20 years, I can, I'll, be, I'll bet you any amount of money you want that you're wrong, right? Because uh, the chances of calling what our society looks like in 20 years about Zippo. Uh, in terms of uh, a relatively recent example of that, consider the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, people have gone back and looked at the literature, and even two years before the collapse of the Soviet Union, about six people of any standing in the world predicted it, and they were minor academics. So this is an amazing uh, phase change that occurred from nowhere. 
Uh, and it's important to know that game A could go through such a transition. And so uh, one of the reasons why we have to be working as hard as we can to build game B is so that we have a cadre of people who have uh, a deep body of thought and know what to do if and when the crisis occurs. And that's an if. Uh, there are some people in the game B movement who are absolutely convinced that on February 4th, 2026, civilization will collapse. I'd say, wrong. Uh, you know, I can't tell you when. Anyone who claims they can tell you when, uh, you know, don't believe them. Uh, but uh, as an ensemble of risks, what's the uh, chance that our uh, game A civilization will reach a uh, serious crisis sometime in the next 20 years? I think it's pretty high. Uh, and so that is another part of uh, getting being ready for. So you imagine we're three or four years from now and we have a couple of million people who have uh, absorbed uh, what we're doing here and, you know, the 2%, at 2% be uh, 7 million people approximately, 6.6 uh, .6 million people in the United States. We won't get them all, so we get half, a third, 2 million people. Uh, and the shit starts to hit the fan and no one knows what to do. Uh, we have 2 million people that can step forward and say, hey, we know what to do, God damn it, here it is, right? And at, at times like that is when there could be a short road to game B. And it's one of the reasons we have to get up early every day and work hard to bring this thing into realization because we don't know when the, when the, the short road to game B might open up all right awesome jim and uh alexander gould uh would you like to ask your questions jim hey yeah thanks so much for for talking today um so just a, for a little bit of context i was um at, along with i think a couple other people who are on this call i was pretty involved in the um unity movement which was brett weinstein's um movement to try to get you know a republican and a democrat into office and um we so we kind of did a lot of political action and actually organized a lot of people and ended up you know engaging i think our email list by the end was close to forty thousand people um so i think there is some movement and a hunger um more than people realize for kind of a at least as partial movement into the game B space. Andrew Yang is advocating for a universal basic income um, and that gets a lot of traction. So I think that there are a couple of those key ideas that can work in the game A system and get a lot of traction. And it's through those ideas that we can start to you know, push the wheel forwards. Um, what doesn't exist is uh, yet as a home for those ideas outside of individuals. And I do think politics essentially is about individuals. Um, so my question is, how can we um, kind of build that home for those ideas in a, in a more dynamic and interesting way, um, potentially a party, potentially something else for those key ideas and then let people emerge to support those ideas. So, you know, you say we're supporting Andrew Yang, even though he's not game B um, or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a, something that needs to be explored. And, uh, you know, after we realized the Emancipation Party, uh, that we were just incompetent at party building, as uh, Brett Weinstein actually said, he was, and he was, as I said, number three in the whole thing, uh, in the formation. Uh, too many Thomas Jeffersons, not enough Ben Franklins. By that he meant uh, too many thinkers, not enough uh, uh, 
people that could go out and be front men, right? Uh, and uh, and I think that you got to think about that, right? Who's going to be your candidate? Uh, I, I did have Brett on my uh, podcast uh, not too long ago, and I at the, the punchline at the end is that I registered the domain name uh, uh, Brett Weinstein uh, 2024.org, and I told him I'd hold it in escrow for him. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think he'd be an interesting candidate for a bunch of reasons because uh, he's the anti-politician, he's unflappable, he's remarkably smart, and he's the right age. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm going to be teasing him. Uh, I will also say he told me all about unity way before it was announced. And I told him exactly why it wouldn't work. And it didn't work pretty much exactly for the reasons I told him. Uh, but nonetheless, as you say, uh, there, there was some very interesting, uh, learnings along the way and the capturing of, of the mailing list and, uh, and the general, uh, interest, uh, and you may know he, he and some other folks are working on uh, unity 2.0, uh, exactly what's in it yet, I don't know, but uh, I know they're working on it. Uh, and I'll be interested to see. Uh, you know, I will give you an example of some of the other things that we've thought about. Uh, in, you know, if Game B or uh, Emancipation Party 2.0 or something wanted to play a role without starting a political party, what would happen if we built a super PAC and went out and raised a bunch of money? You know, let's, let, you know, as Lenin said, we'll get the capitalists to sell us the rope with which we'll hang them, right? Uh, so we'll use the dirty uh, system of money in politics and raise $100 million, right? Suppose we have 2 million, say in 2024, we have 2 million game beers now. Uh, and then each come off of 100 bucks, uh, we have $200 million. And uh, say, we're going to put all that money on one person uh, in the primaries, right? Uh, and it could be a Democrat, could be Republican. Whoever comes closest to our platform gets the money, God damn it. Uh, there's, that's one way to play it. Don't know if it'll work. Uh, the other one, which I like, uh, is, uh, and again, this is the long game, uh, is don't start with presidential politics. Start with city councils and state legislatures and uh, things of that ilk, uh, where somebody who actually has some thought uh, and is deep uh, will be quite different than most of the candidates. I mean, you know, uh, when I was 14 years old, I was the campaign manager for someone that ran for the state legislature. Uh, and he just barely lost, scares me. The guy was a complete nimnal, but, uh, uh, you know, it shows you the quality of candidates had a 14-year-old campaign manager. <laughs> Uh, but he almost won. He came, it was a three, uh, it was a three person district in Maryland. Those days they had multi-member districts and about 10 people ran. He came in fourth, you know, he got another hundred votes. He would have won. Uh, so, uh, you know, the quality of people we've attracted the game B movement, the quality of thinking we have behind it. Uh, if we can not scare the cattle, uh, just the pure quality of our people may well be enough to win uh, city council, state legislator, county executive type races. And that might be another place to start. And many of those races are nonpartisan, at least in Virginia, county and city races uh, by law are nonpartisan. So uh, you're not allowed to identify as a party. So we have a, you know, a, a better opportunity uh, to stealthily uh, come in and get some uh, experience, get our ideas uh, generated. So I will not say I have the answer uh, at all, but I have, you know, uh, many of us do some ideas and, you know, I hope this uh, younger generation of people take these ideas and, and some of their own and run with them. And personally, I'm, I'm quite interested to see what Brett and his friends cook up. And uh, if it's more sensible than the last part, uh, last time around, I may well help them. Mm. 
Awesome, Jim. And uh, speaking of uh, getting very interested people who are game A into game B, uh, Stephanie, would you like to unmute yourself and uh, ask Jim your question? Oh, yeah, sure. And this is not this is not super related to the conversation we're having, but this is a more general question about who who would you say kind of in the spirit of, of like plan A evolution, plan B revolution, who, who would you say is the is the game A kind of like winner who has become most interested in game B ideas or who would you say could be the most interested in game B? There are some and I'm not gonna tell you who they are. I wanna know, why? Is it, is it, is it like they don't wanna go public with this? They're not ready to go, they're not ready to move their flag yet. And this but will be- do they, know, do they know about each other? Uh, if there was enough of them, would yeah, that's they? That's an interesting idea. Uh, one of the ideas that we use uh, in game B is that over time, we're going to seduce people into game B away from game A. Uh, you know, show them that it's better. Uh, and fun. And uh, show them, you know, don't tell, tell to. But, uh, and so we're nurturing uh, some fairly heavy game A people some of whom you would know their names, uh, but they're not even close to ready yet to move the flag. Uh, and so I think we'll just leave it there. Okay, well, good to know they're being seduced. Keep, keep, keep seducing. Uh, Stephanie, I so love your prodding and we almost got it. We almost got it and we almost recorded it, but uh, nah, we're close. But that's not even close. <laughs> <laughs> it would take half a bottle of bourbon to get close and, and you'd be passed out before I was, I guarantee it. <laughs> Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. Yeah, Good question, you. though. Very important. Very, very, very important. That's part of the strategy, that's all I can say. All right. So, uh, Oliver, you had a couple of interesting questions. Uh, would you like to ask one, Jim? Yeah, sure. Um, so, Jim, I, I want to like set the premise of this question. This is a three-parter. Uh, we're all individuals without platforms that are probably still stuck in game A. Where are, and oh, there we're, you are. Hi, Oliver. Yeah, okay. And if we're taking the long road and want to take advantage of the idea of compounding returns, um, what are some of the best actions that we can take right now? How can we best support each other in taking those actions? And is there a space that you would recommend in which we can organize or cohere? And I guess I'm asking this because it seems like some of the conversation thus far has been about running in local races. And I'm having a difficult time reconciling that with the idea that the broader public is not ready to have these conversations yet. So I'm just thinking as an individual, what is it that I can do without necessarily exposing myself or leveraging a platform I don't have yet? Yeah, uh, and that's a very important and interesting question. Now, as I said, you could run locally in stealth mode, don't label yourself game B uh, and just incorporate a few game B ideas uh, in, uh, and that's perfectly okay. Uh, in terms of organizing, again, because the, we're still so early, uh, part of the first move for anyone that wants to be part of the broader movement is find the others, right? This was uh, Jordan Hall's famous statement in 2017, find the others. And we finally have the place to find the others, uh, game-b.org. Uh, I'm not really supposed to give that out. So don't pass that along to everybody quite yet. We're in soft opening mode. So uh, y'all are close enough. You can come on in. But we have built ourselves the Game B home. As you probably heard, we got in, into a little shit storm with Facebook a couple of weeks ago. And uh, fortunately, I've been working in the background on the new Game B home for a year, just looking at 
platforms I had, and I had actually found the right one in January and in, in December and had set up a little stub example. It only took us three days to get it up and running and we now have hundreds of people on it. Uh, so find the others online. Next, as the numbers get bigger, find the others locally. Uh, once this damn COVID thing uh, goes away, do meetups. Five people is all you need. Three people. You know, first meet at a bar, then get a, a meeting room at the library, you know, and meet once a month, uh, then meet once every two weeks, then meet once a week. Uh, soon we're going to be offering uh, audio video presentations like this that people can put up on a big screen in a local face-to-face uh, -face meetup. Uh, so I think there's a lot of things you can do, but for now where the numbers are still small and the density in any given location is uh, low, uh, come to game-b.org and when they'll ask you three questions before they let you in, tell them I sent you. Right. Thank you, Jim. All right, awesome, Oliver. Um, LP, the artist formerly known as Layman, would you like to unmute yourself and ask Jim a question? Hey, Jim, good to see you again. Hey, um, Layman. <laughs> I got a couple questions on my mind. Maybe I'll just throw them all at you and we'll see what comes out. Uh, you guys were way ahead in the Emancipation Party on UBI, Democracy Bucks, Medicare for All, um, but not necessarily the Green New Deal aspect. So I'm curious about what the Emancipation Party take on ecological policy is. I'm curious about the Emancipation Party take on voting reform. Like, yes, we got to give people the ability to you know, incentivize the politics they want with their democracy dollars. But what about the actual process of calculating the votes? And then the third thing is, yes, it's a long-term project, but part of a long-term project is the middle term. So when you've got a couple of candidates who are, say, Emancipation Party or Game B candidates in an existing legislature, was there a strategy? Was there insight into the principles by which a person could win the battles within the existing legislative framework? Let's take the last one first. And the answer is, generally speaking, no. Uh, the idea is mimetics. Uh, you know, make speeches, uh, get get those uh, get the stories published in the newspaper, et cetera, get invited to the debates. Uh, so truthfully, two people in the Virginia's legislature ain't going to get dick done, I can tell you. Uh, but uh, they'll get some uh, attention. So it's part of the mimetic warfare. That's basically what it'd be about. Uh, in terms of the uh, the first question, which was uh, restate that for me very briefly. Uh, uh, it's the, what was the ecological oh, yeah, yeah, policy? Yeah. That, in, in retrospect, when I went back and looked at this, we didn't have one, and we didn't even think about it. I don't know why. Uh, Brett Weinstein had, was thinking about it a little bit, uh, but it didn't make our cut. Uh, if it made our cut, if if we were doing this today, it would be, and as you know from the Game B uh, ideologies or ideas, uh, it's near the top. It's one of the top generator functions. That growth has overshot the carrying capacity of the planet, and we're all going to uh, have a, a major crash here by the end of the century if we don't do something about it. Uh, so it, we, that would have to be a well thought out program. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, uh, and but I've never written it down. And so somebody needs to come up with a smart one. And the current uh, so-called Green New Deal floated by Bernie Sanders was complete caca, uh, not good at all, and uh, for a bunch of reasons. But someone needs to think that through uh, with the best scientists, the best engineers, uh, and it also needs to be woven into how it's going to be financed, uh, either with, you know, and maybe that's part of the new money system. Maybe part one of the signals is energy, energy versus environment, right? Uh, so, 
I, I don't have the answers. I got some piece parts. Someone needs to do it. The Emancipation Party didn't do uh, anything there. In terms of the uh, medium question, um, I have spent a lot of time thinking and writing, or I have actually written it down, on something called liquid democracy. And we talked about this in the uh, uh, EP days and the early Game B days, because that was right when the German Pirate Party came up with liquid democracy. And I ordered their book and I signed up for their online service. And uh, that was about as far as I took it. But then later, and we realized it was too early. They hadn't thought it through. We hadn't thought it through. And it was too big a jump. Later, I got very interested in this. And uh, I've written, I think, three, four papers, three of which were up on Medium. Uh, the, the good best place to start is an introduction to uh, liquid democracy on Medium by me. Uh, and it lays out uh, a delegative proxy form of uh, democracy where there is no legislature. And every person in principle can vote on every issue. But the truth is people don't have the expertise, uh, the motivation or the time to do that. So uh, you can proxy your vote by so-called issue area to somebody you believe is closer to you uh, is, who is uh, who you know, who you trust, who is shares your values and has more expertise. You know, so for instance, maybe you uh, proxy your healthcare vote to your family doctor and your education vote uh, to your third grade teacher who was your favorite teacher ever, right? And you proxy your environmental vote to the Sierra Club and your gun control vote to the National Rifle Association or whoever it is you support in that domain. Uh, and then they could reproxy, and eventually these uh, votes get concentrated in people who are trustworthy with respect to point of view and knowledgeable with respect to the domain. And those proxy holders are the ones who essentially both initiate and approve legislation. Uh, now, I'll also warn you, liquid democracy has never been tried. So in my papers, I co constantly warn, don't try it at the nation state level first. Uh, I think it would be great to try at a proto-B, a community of 150 people, maybe a thousand, uh, in a small town, in a at a uh, in a club, you know, the you know, try it at some small small scale first. I'm sure there's some problems with it. They may be fixed, fixable, maybe not. And then if it uh, works at that scale, move it at a small city might go to liquid democracy. Uh, I've talked to some people about, hey, wouldn't it be cool to run somebody on a liquid democracy slate on a city council, uh, particularly one where the uh, city council's been famously inattentive to the needs of the populace, right? Which is a lot of them. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's an, there is an example of uh, a radical new form of democracy that's kind of super democracy, uh, but without elections. And for those people who don't want to get their head into that shit at all, they just pass their proxies on to people they trust and they don't have to worry about it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jim. Uh, Layman, did you have uh, um, anything, a follow-up? Uh, no, I love all that stuff. Stuff. Um, if I if I had any other question to ask, it would be, you know, how you guys thought about the. I mean, I, I know it's kind of a failed party, but how are you going to organize the party itself so that it could deal with complexity, right? So that the individual participants could have a simple enough interface in creating a party structure that was smart enough to adapt to and solve problems that are arising. Yeah, truthfully, we had we said just about that much <laughs> that we needed to do that, but uh, we will leave that to the student to figure out. Uh, now, one thing we did do in the Emancipation Party, which is uh, not actually on the website anymore, uh, is and this may been one of the reasons we failed actually, uh, is we thought we would use the old 19th century uh, 
political party model, particularly the English and European 19th century political party model and charge membership dues, uh, charge $10 a month per, uh, $20 a month per member, though you could also have, I can't afford $20 a month and be a $5 a month member with exactly the same rights and privileges. Uh, and the idea was that that could generate a very substantial war chest uh, that could be used to uh, allow the local chapters. We did have the concept of chapters and the chapters would self-organize. They'd elect delegates to the next level up. And so it was certainly gonna be bottom up, but we did not work out the details. Again, think about $20 a month times 2 million people. Uh, that's a shitload of money. How much money is that? That's $4 billion a year, right? Uh, is it that much? Let's see, 20 times 10 is 200 times two. No, it's uh, $400 million a year. One point, uh, $2 billion per presidential four-year cycle. Uh, plenty enough for the organizational infrastructure of a very intense bottom-up self-organizing party. Uh, we, you know, we actually can think about it. We did have it. We did think about it a little bit more. Uh, then we pushed down radical transparency. For instance, every chapter would have its own bank account and the bank account would be world readable uh, to keep the local party authorities uh, accountable to themselves and everybody else on how they spent the party's money. So they may get you know, $1,000 a month to organize their local community party and they better be uh, spending it on things they can justify because their bank account's gonna be world readable. Uh, so we had gotten that far at least. All right. Uh, awesome, Jim. Um, next, uh, we can move on to Reed. Uh, you had an interesting question. Would you like to unmute yourself and ask it to Jim? Yeah, sure. I was still kind of processing that liquid democracy idea. I thought that was really interesting. Um, apologies if this is kind of pessimistic. Um, I'll just read my question. Um, watching the U.S. from over the fence in Canada, it seems that a political party that aligned well with Game B could easily be destroyed by the powerful forces of game A. All it would take is a few billionaires, a media apparatus, and the word socialism to derail the whole thing. Um, so why exert energy into the field of political parties? Wondering if it's best to see the ideas culturally and ripen an appetite for an emergent political party when the time is right? How do you see where we should invest our energies? I guess I'm like, why aren't we investing all of our energy into this um, rather than playing their game and trying to win at it when it seems, at least in the United States, to be kind of the deck is stacked against us. Yeah, truthfully, the core game B movement today is not engaged in politics at all for that reason. In fact, on the uh, uh, game, the new game B home and the former home on Facebook, we actually have a rule against the discussion of partisan politics. Uh, so, uh, you know, the to the degree that there's a consensus within the Game B community today, it's along the lines you just laid out that the time is not right. Uh, but Game B is famously a big tent. And if people want to try, uh, I don't think we're opposed. Uh, but uh, I guess I'll go no further than that, that 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 would not that putting a lot of energy into partisan politics right now, is probably not the consensus view in the Game B world. For exactly the reason you said. Okay. Thank Let's you. have some proof first and then uh, seduce people over and we have a couple million, then maybe it's time to do a party. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely read. Yeah, so this is exactly what happened with the Game B uh, um, um, a movement and the birth of that. But um, actually, um, I would like to ask uh, Stephanie's um, question that she asked in the chat, which I believe is relevant to this. So how does uh, Game B correlate or not with the left-right political spectrum? And it, so what would you say is the new or Game B way to see or the, the political landscape in general? 
we don't much talk about it other than we don't not really interested in it. Uh, one thing that we will say often is that uh, we're not really interested in 18th and 19th century ideologies, right? Uh, that what comes next is going to be orthogonal to red and blue. Uh, and it's going to be very different. It, you know, it's not going to be capitalism. It's not going to be socialism. It's going to be, you know, fractally oriented, self-organizing, decentralized, network-centric, meta-stable. And uh, I couldn't tell you exactly what that is, but I can tell you it's neither command and control socialism, nor is it rapacious hyper-capitalism. It's something else. Uh, and so that's really kind of as much time as we spend thinking about our relationship to uh, you know, uh, you know, the current, uh, team red, team blue shit show, um, uh, and the equivalent in other countries. Uh, and, and there are people who try to drive us into the, you know, into playing the game of partisan politics and we eject them from the game B, uh, home when they do that. Uh, we say, nope, not playing that game. Well, you gotta, you gotta, and I go, nope, no, we don't out the door. If you continue to talk about it, it won't shut up. I'll give you three warnings and then out you go. Uh, so not really a core interest of game B we're playing a longer game. All right. All right. Got it. Got it. All right. So, uh, next, um, Wesley, you had a question about uh, degrowth. Uh, would you care to ask that? Yeah. Uh, so my question was just, um, have you spent any time thinking about the overlap between the degrowth movement, which seems to be producing a, significant amount of literature coming out of Europe and and game B. Um, I just find it interesting to try and connect the dots uh, mostly because the degrowth movement seems to be yeah coming from like this sort of academic setting whereas game B seems a lot more sort of grassroots and disconnected from institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting uh, there's a lot of talk in the game B movement about living in balance with the earth. Uh, and it's now at the very top of uh, how we think about things because we don't solve that problem. Uh, that's the one that's gonna get us, right? So we have to have a realistic uh, solution to that. However, whoever came up with the name degrowth uh, had the stupidest fucking marketing mind ever, right? Because it's not growth. Uh, that's the problem. It's the use of the Earth's carrying capacity. And I basically steal this from Richard Feynman, one of the top physicists of the 20th century, who said there's tremendous room into the microcosm. Uh, you know, think about a computer chip, for instance. An incredible amount of interesting things that's made out of about a quarter of a cup of sand and a little bit of metal. Uh, and every generation, the computer chip gets more and more intricate. And yet the amount of material that goes into computer chip same, stays the same. So we're growing into the microcosm. Uh, as we learn how to do nanotechnology, the same, uh, even more so. Uh, as we start learning how to uh, build biological factories to make drugs and things and food later, uh, the same. Uh, so degrowth, what the hell, bad, terrible name. Uh, rather say we have to understand and honor the limits of the carrying capacity of earth and create the highest uh, quality of real life for people within that context. I'll give just another, another simple example about the microcosm. Uh, frankly, I think Americans in particular have way too many clothes, right? Uh, people got 
like I hate to even count how many shirts I own, but it's way too many, 40 probably, right? In reality, if I had five, that would be enough. But imagine if instead of buying more shirts, I uh, traded with my neighbor in my Proto B uh, each week for her to spend an hour doing some neat embroidery on my shirt. Uh, and so my shirt kept got getting uh, more and more intricate work of art uh, every, uh, every week. Uh, and I was giving, you know, 3% of my earnings to her uh, to, uh, to do that. And so uh, I'm enjoying this beautiful work of art that my five shirts are becoming. And yet the imposition on Mother Earth is hardly anything. And so there's an example of growth of beauty and aesthetics and richness into the microcosm. Uh, and so my life is better. People that look at me are better off because they see this beautiful art. Uh, the person who's doing the embroidery is better is better off because she's making a living doing what she loves to do. And yet, uh, so we're all richer uh, and we've grown in our richness and yet we have not impinged in any material way on uh, Mother Earth. So uh, that's how I prefer to think about this. And it they need, and game B is quite mature in its thinking in this direction. Uh, so I think we're, we're aligned in the mission, uh, but I wouldn't touch the words degrowth with a 10 foot pole or even an 11 foot Italian. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jim. Um, and, uh, what a bunch of amazing questions and, uh, we're coming to a close perhaps, uh, one more, uh, or so, um, Elu, uh, you had a question on intentional communities. Would you, would you like to ask it to Jim? Yeah, so my question was, uh, what role do intentional communities play in the transition into proto-bees? So I'm currently living on an intentional community, and I feel like a lot of the, I guess, uh, hardware is like ready for proto-bees, but a lot of the software isn't ready for people don't necessarily have a lot of the same ideas. Um, and then I was at a second question of what role do the younger generations play in the transition? I feel like a lot of, you know, high school graduates or, you know, college students are, they don't necessarily have a lot of finances to take care of. They could move around a lot easier uh, and have a lot more opportunity, I feel, to, to start experimenting. And they don't necessarily, uh, you know, subscribe to any ideas or political parties or anything they're a lot more i guess lenient with what you know what they what they might believe is actually happening in the highest wider space community yep. uh let me do the second one first uh there's no about no doubt about what you say is true every uh political movement first gets, well, not necessarily first, but when it's growth phase, it's among in the young for exactly the reasons you said. They don't have sunk costs in their identity. Uh, you know, they can move around uh, much, much easier. They don't have three kids, two cars and a mortgage, right? And uh, if we look at the growth in the game B participation, uh, it's amazing. Now our peak group is the millennials and the uh, Zoomers, people like 24 and under, are actually a bigger cohort than us old farts. It's quite impressive. Uh, with uh, Xers, younger Xers in particular, uh, uh, next. So uh, if Game B is any indication, you're absolutely right. All the energy in Game B is now from the young people. Uh, and that's where it's going to happen, uh, if it's going to happen at all. 
uh, us old farts, we're ready to retire, right? Uh, and um, I can hardly wait until uh, everything I do in game B is taken over by young people and I can just sit back and watch, smoke a cigar, have a beer, right? Uh, the, um, uh, to the first question about intentional communities, uh, some proto bees are actually uh, envisioning themselves as full on intentional communities. Uh, some of them think of themselves as kind of uh, uh, residential real estate development plus, plus, plus. And one of the things that we're encouraging in the Proto B movement, we have a thing called the Proto B Incubator, where there's about 10 uh, Proto Bs under development, uh, is to explore the domain of uh, Proto B hood from at one end intentional communities to another one. Uh, which is kind of like a suburban subdivision, but with a built-in farm, uh, CSA, uh, maker space, and some resident businesses. Uh, and so I think uh, there's, you know, there's some uh, good, good rooms to, ex uh, to explore there. Uh, the traditional uh, intentional communities, uh, you know, if they would like to move towards being proto-bees, we'd welcome it. But as you say, they don't have the software. And a lot of them are pretty set in their ways. And I think they're good examples that we can learn from, uh, but uh, we're not gonna try to pull them too hard. They wanna come great. Uh, we're certainly gonna learn from them. Uh, and, and I think they're on you know, sort of an aligned mission, uh, but not necessarily with exactly the same software. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. And uh, I guess we have one more question. Um, the Reverend, would you like to speak on behalf of the divine? Uh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> I'm a Unitarian Universalist after all. So that that comes uh, with the whole backstory. Anyway, it's really a delight to engage with you all, especially you, Jim. And I definitely want you to know, Jim, that I heard the invitation to drink half a bottle of bourbon with you to discover the deep secrets of your mind. I intend to take you up on that someday. Um, my question is just noticing who's here. Uh, I notice a couple of things. One, I notice um, there's actually an inordinate, inordinate amount of Canadians uh, on this call. I live in North Van. So if anyone wants to hit me up later on the gamebee.org, I would love to hear from you and maybe we could carry on a Canadian conversation because the multiplicity of parties up here does maybe present some opportunity uh, for movement in um, the Emancipation Party. But um, I'm also curious as to why there are so many more men in this space than women. That's and a good question. And we I'm very interested in that too. We've been tracking that statistic uh, for years and it's been remarkably consistent, 25% female, 75% male. Uh, and not only Game B, but the spinoffs of Game B, like Rally Point Alpha, 25% female, 75% male. Uh, and we go out of our way. For instance, uh, when I, we, I was building the, the uh, new Game B home, uh, I intentionally uh, selected 50-50 uh, of the 50 people who were the testers to be half women and half men. Because I happen to know from my uh, 40 years experience building online systems uh, that women and men on average, obviously with huge individual differences, uh, find different parts of the design important. And so I wanted to enforce by diktat 50-50 and we achieved that and it was actually helpful. Uh, and, but uh, in terms of uh, who actually uh, hits the systems and engage 2575 and here's the weird one i'd like to i'd love to have some feedback from y'all if you have some ideas on why this is uh, we get now pretty good demographic data from facebook on our 3000 member uh, game b group 
and it has it has the population by age and by gender together now. And so this is very peculiar. Uh, the ratio of men to women uh, is best at, for the oldest generation and goes downhill with age. Amongst the 65 and older, my, my folks, uh, it's 60-40 uh, men, 40% women. For Zoomers, those 24 and under, it's 85 men, 15 women. And it's a straight line between the two. And I have no idea why that is. If you had asked me without having seen the data, I would have predicted the opposite. Uh, so I don't, I don't know it. I don't know what the answer is, but I am damn concerned about it. Uh, is it be as simple as like that. I mean, I don't know what I'm talking about right now, but like the algorithm putting us together and lumping us together, um, no, there's no algorithm. Uh, we don't. Are, we're not driven algorithmically. We uh, uh, not even we, on Facebook. No. Oh no. No. We're not. We're. Uh, they don't suggest us. Uh, we're considered aberrant. Uh, everything. Everyone in the network has been recruited by somebody else in the network, uh, and or listening to uh, the various Game B people's podcasts or their Medium articles, of which there's been lots. Uh, so it's all been broadcast into the world, and people resonate and come. Uh, and then some come and don't like and leave. Uh, so we're not sure which of those parts of the dynamic have produced it, but it's it's like a metaphysical certainty that if you do anything in the game B space, it'll be 75, 25 women. Uh, and I damn wish we could figure out how to solve that. Uh, and it's even more disturbing now that I've recently discovered that it's inverse of what you'd think age-wise. Um, is it okay, Albert, if I try to offer something here? Yeah. I and I put it into the chat, Jim, and I'm curious what you think. So I would imagine that for nobody here, maybe a Jordan Peterson fan, but I do think that men in general probably are more willing to take certain risks, including ex existential risks, like getting their head chopped off. It's not necessarily a trait that I know many women who would go into, let's say, a spear fight or like a, a knuckle boxing fight. And, you know, going out on a limb and saying, hey, I'm supporting a group of people that has like some weird ideas, maybe something that men are just like more comfortable with doing, especially younger men. Whereas like once you get a little older, there's there's less to lose on, on some level. And so I, I'm not that surprised, actually. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, I should, and, you know, it's true that my startup business career, I started a number of companies, helped other people start companies, similar uh, ratios applied uh, that men were more less risk averse uh, on average. Uh, uh, but again, we had plenty of women. You know, we had uh, in all my startups, some of the best people we had were women, but there was less of them than there were men. Um, and so it may just be risk aversion some, somehow as a function of age. And if you want to play a genetic determinist, which I hate to do, uh, you might say that Mother Nature programmed women who are of the age to have and take care of children uh, to be a little bit more cautious, uh, perhaps, than those that are past their childbearing years. That, that could, you know, and, bullshit. And so, I have no, no reason to believe it's true, but uh, if one wanted to use the uh, broken lens of genetic determinism, uh, that, that might tell you that. But I wish I could figure out how to fix that, because I would really like it to be 50-50. Uh, and I, uh, you know, I will say that we have a lot of women in leadership roles. The the co-leader of the Facebook group, Sharon Lewis, uh, the the leader of Rally Point Alpha, Patricia DeLuccio. You know, we got Nora Bateson, we got uh, Benita Roy. A lot of good thought leaders and operational leaders. Uh, but I'd love to have twice as many. Tell you the truth. Well, um, I'll, I'll yeah. invite 
some women I know next time we have one of these chats. Do it. Yeah. The chats yeah, are, even, uh, by the way, these chats are even more male typically. They're more like 85%. So I don't know why, but it is. Uh, my wife would say, because women got too much to do. God damn it. You guys are too lazy and don't do the dishes. Uh, and I expect there's probably something to that too. So do it. Maybe one way to get more women in game B is for more, more men to commit to do the dishes. For instance, I handle the vacuuming and mopping at our house and I unload the dishwasher. Uh, and, uh, if more guys did stuff like that, there were women that they are associated with would have uh, more time to engage in this kind of thinking. So do the dishes, do the vacuuming and do the mopping and maybe that'll help. Yeah. And I, I love this conversation. And um, this is very because this is very uh, appropriate. It's happening right now because I'm actually in talks with someone from the sense making community who who specifically wants to do this wants to bring the feminine back into the game B and sense making space and the reason um is is because perhaps we're asking the wrong question it's not so much why is are there not women in the sense making game B space where that are there not more women why is the feminine not in the game B and sense making space because it's a, a way of being and actually um Karen um would you like to unmute yourself and give your perspective because I think that's very much in line with uh what we are um, talking about why, thank you so much. Um, and I, I, I love the turn this conversation has taken. And my, the point I, I put in the chat room, uh, um, uh, women are more represented in some value and activity spheres in our current world than men, and men are more active in other value spheres and activities. Um, men are very, uh, in, in this group of guys like you guys, and I think Stephanie's left, so I may be the only female gender female person here. Uh, um, when you are operating at this level of abstraction and I cheer you on, my father was a nuclear physicist at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. So I'm very comfortable around you guys. I mean, um, but this kind of super heady, super abstract, very high level of abstraction is very largely male preserve. Women by nature, we are more in our bodies. And I will note that when I attended Ken Wilber's What Now conference three years ago, um, one in five of the presenters was female. The guys were terrific. There was so much terrific stif stuff there right along the line of what you people are on. And I am going to join the, the, the Game B community. Like, you guys rock. And I want to help. I'm writing fiction. I want to help get that this out more into the mainstream. I will do what I can to help. But I come at it as a humanities nerd who thinks science is really cool. So I'm not put on. I, I, I love this stuff. But we communicate basically human beings by telling stories. This is how we started when we first got our, uh, you know, prefrontal cortex is we started seeing patterns and then telling stories at whatever level of abstraction we were capable of starting with animism. There's a spirit in every rock and bush and bend in the river. And then we started, as we got more online with our prefrontal cortex, we started telling stories of gods and goddesses and our innate capacities and processes of nature. And you go up levels of abstraction with each of these stages of humanity. You, you folks, let's face it, we are operating kind of at the foremost level of abstractive, abstractive capacity here. And you can go into whole, a lot of Ken Wilber stuff about how we've, we, we pack more power to the punch because we can see larger patterns, we can analyze, we can see what works and what doesn't faster. But at this level of abstraction, the super heady stuff that's all in the head, that's still largely masculine at this time. 
I think this is going to level out, but I think there's a biological aspect of it here too, that we women are by nature more in our bodies, you know, just, I mean, I, I don't want need to get too graphic here, but I mean, we, we bear the babies, we nurse them. Uh, we have a whole different kind of risk. And yes, risk is a factor, whichever one of you mentioned it, but biologically our programming, our, 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 our hardwiring, not just our operating system. We we handle a whole different kind of risk in, the, in our lives as we live them, and so I am delighted to see that a conscious attempt to rebalancing this. Stay smart, guys. Stay brainy. Welcome the feminine. I'm with you. I'll help. <laughs> hey, thank you. That's wonderful. Uh, come on over, and uh, you know I'd love to pick your brain. Frankly, I'd like to do a video chat with you. And uh, I would love to. I I mean I've just watched one of your podcasts, and I am brimming with ideas, questions, stuff I can maybe put in my fiction. I would love to. Okay, sounds great, uh, Albert. Uh, if you could connect Karen to me, I'd appreciate it. And also with Eric and who was the other dude from the moneyless party, uh, connect them folks to me too. I want to get them. I want to talk to them too. Absolutely. That is my strength. That's what I'm here for making connections out of nowhere. Again, Karen, uh, Eric, everyone, thank you so much for coming on. And this has been amazing. Like I had no idea what was going on and we end like this and then just like, Oh my God, not now Karen's going to help co-create uh, the feminine game B like, this is amazing. So again, I guess uh, you're not supposed to do that if it's the feminine game. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's some other thing. Whatever. Sorry, they exactly. This is why this keeps happening, right? Exactly. Because yeah. you know, you know, I'm a rough <laughs> old redneck, basically. So uh, you know, that's just who I, I I am. That's my authentic self, and that's probably uh, you know I probably should uh, you know not encourage that in others. Um, that's not going to change in me, but we should probably think about not encouraging it in others. Yeah. Uh, but. Or, or not. I don't know. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's been great. Uh, thank you, Albert. I had no idea what to expect either. I just said, you know, I said I'd happy to, you know, show up for 90 minutes and babble and, and thus I have. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Again, like, uh, thanks so much, Jim, for coming on today. We really appreciate your insight and your guidance on matters of catalyzing real change, which is something you're clearly a professional at. And again, thanks so much, everyone who came out and who contributed to this uh, amazing questions and really just great insights and really just this group discussion. This is really awesome. And we're looking to make this uh, possibly a series, perhaps with a speaker at each one, or perhaps even have additional sessions, which are maybe more of a, a town hall format. We're really just like co-creating and just really getting this, uh, uh, you know, collective intelligence working on these big, nasty problems. So uh, be on the lookout for that. And we can continue the conversation and collaboration over at the Nomadic Nomads Discord. I'm going to post the link to the chat. And again, uh, thanks so much, everyone, to come on today. And peace out and step up because the world needs you. Okay. Goodbye, everyone. Take care. Thanks, Jim. Rock on. Bye. Thank you, Jim. And I will get those connections.